Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. Managing portfolios over the course of two decades, Mike Green has developed a unique framework for assessing risk and opportunity. Trained in his early days to perform equity valuation, Mike came on the scene just as the tech bubble was imploding and the massive discrepancy between growth and value was coming undone. In a great seat to ride the small cap value wave during the post-internet bubble but pre-crisis period, Mike began to appreciate the force of market prices and their impact on behavior, narratives, and how they become entangled in feedback loops. Our conversation is a retrospective on these situations of codependency between profits, psychology, and the economy. In this context, we discuss left and right tail events in valuations, in house price appreciation, and in events of both extreme high and low implied and realized volatility. Mike's insights on market structure bring to life the motivations and market frictions that ultimately give rise to a transaction. Price, in his rendering, is less about valuation and more about the conditions that create a trade. The result can be option prices that clear the market considerably higher than what one would think possible, and Mike references the near 100% bid to implied correlation in 2012 as an example. Today, Mike is Chief Strategist for Logica Capital Advisors and, as usual, has a lot on his mind. We talk a good deal about passive investing, a strategy increasingly embraced as simply a better way. For Mike, passive indexation is plenty active. There's a specific decision being made to buy stocks in proportion to their market caps. At a time when both the S&P and NDX have become substantially top-heavy, investors ought to question the efficacy of such a valuation-agnostic approach. Please enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Mike Green. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Mike Green, visiting New York. Good to have you here. Mike's the chief strategist and a portfolio manager at Logica Capital Advisors. Mike, it's great to have you here today. It's great to be here, Dean. Thank you. We will have a ton of ground to cover. You and I talk regularly, and I've always valued your views, not just on macro, but really the system of risk-taking that markets find themselves in. Why don't we rewind a little bit? We'll, uh, over the course of our conversation, we'll cover some of the more epic risk events that you've traded through and the, the philosophy, I think, that has emerged through managing portfolio risk through those events. How did you get started in, in finance? What is it that attracted you initially to the business of, of finance, and how did you get your start? In a somewhat embarrassing framework, I have to give credit to Oliver Stone. In 1987, I was a 17-year-old teenager who knew nothing about stock markets and thought Wall Street, the movie, was absolutely spectacular. Took all the wrong lessons from it, I'm sure. But it really affected my interest in the markets. And to be honest, I already had established an interest in it, stayed home from high school in San Francisco to watch the crash of 87 unfold. Strangely, had a strong fever on that day. And then went to the East Coast from San Francisco to go to the University of Pennsylvania for undergrad, Wharton School of Business, and then took a complete detour and actually went into management consulting because I really wanted to try to understand how companies were built and how companies were run. That in turn led to me developing a level of expertise in valuation technology, you know, the idea of how to value a company. And on the back of that, I actually, with a group of buddies out of consulting, we built a software company that ended up being acquired in the 1990s. And that was where I first met my mentor, Mitch Julis, and also Josh Friedman of Canyon Partners. 
they were our first clients for the software company in the investment management space. They actually encouraged us to link it to the public equity databases for a tool that could be used for valuing public companies as compared to the business units of private companies. And when that business was sold to a firm that uh, ultimately became a part of Credit Suisse, I took that opportunity to transition to the buy side, going to one of our clients, a firm called Moody Aldrich Partners that ran separate accounts up in the Boston area, and made that transition in June of 1999. And so was incredibly fortunate to be sitting in the seat that I was running small cap value money as the first major dislocation that I experienced in the markets began to play out, which was you know, obviously the, the tail end of the dot-com cycle. So that seat was a very interesting one to sit and observe the dynamics of the very end of the dot-com cycle, where you really finally saw the markets bifurcate, right? So until kind of 1999, all markets had broadly risen in the general bull market of the 1990s. And it wasn't until that point, kind of transition from 98 on, that you really began to see the bubble begin to truly unfold. And... Sitting in that seat on March 10th, 2000 was was one of the most interesting experiences of my life because, one, I was too young to fully appreciate what was going on and too inexperienced to fully appreciate what was going on at that point, but, but was able to actually watch firsthand as that divergence that had occurred where the, uh, the NASDAQ had largely inflated and small cap value had been under tremendous pressure. In almost a single day, that began to revert. Right? We had a 7% down day on March 10th, 2000 for the NASDAQ. My portfolios were up 6% on that day. And it really laid bare kind of the underlying dynamics of the importance of flows and allocations. So what was really going on there is is that institutional investors had become so overweight technology names that they tried reallocating into the smaller value names and discovered that the next bid for the technology when they tried to sell it, when first people actually tried to sell the NASDAQ was down 7%. And the first offer for the small cap value names that had become so deeply depressed, home builders trading at half of book value and regional banks trading well below book value, heading into what became the housing bubble, that collapsed in just a matter of, of months. And so being able to sit there and watch that was, was an incredible opportunity. So let, let's really think about that tech bubble and just the, it's, an inter- it's fascinating that you started in the investment industry during this period of valuations we'd never seen before, discrepancies in valuations as well, growth versus value, after you'd created this software company to do valuation. So it's a fascinating time to start. What lessons do we take away from that period? And Greenspan was super early, and I think it was 1996, he called it a rational exuberance. So we had a, a good three or four years left. And relative to when he said it versus how expanded we got was just unbelievable. What, what do you take away from, from that period? I think there's a couple of things to take away. And others have said this far more eloquently than I'll ever be able to say it. But the market has this dynamic, or at least is perceived as having this dynamic of a voting machine versus valuation as kind of a weighing machine. And so I think back to where I got started, the process of understanding how to do valuation was something that was trained, you know, was trained in that at Wharton. But I'll never forget Finance 203 class with a professor by the name of Gary Gordon, who ultimately was the theoretician behind the pricing of the investment-grade CDS structures at AIG. He was the consultant that advised their financial innovation group, I think it was called. 
he had assigned a project to value a company and, and it was just a simple case study to look at the acquisition of Gulf Oil by Chevron. And the valuation came back and it was completely different than what I had thought. And it was completely, completely different. And there were two things that he said. One is you need to always understand that what somebody else is looking at in terms of valuation may not be the same thing you're looking at. So in this case, Chevron was looking at the ability to strip out all of the development costs from Gulf. They were simply buying them from the reserves. And so the cost structure in an acquired entity was radically different. And the second thing he said was, and to be honest, you know, my valuation is just fuzzy. Sometimes numbers are just fuzzy. And it opened me up to this idea that you could see this disconnect. And that was just really reinforced in that time period, that you were playing a different game. You were the variant of the Keynesian beauty contest. How much was somebody else willing to pay for something? All right, that's really what drove the dynamics. Now, since then, I've developed some theories around what the dot-com bubble really was. I think it is linked to what we're currently experiencing in a way that very few people make that link, but we'll come back to that probably. Let me put this in front of you about the tech bubble. And I think there is there are certain other periods like this as well, that the force of markets, the force of price can sometimes be defining. To be short the NASDAQ, put your career in such jeopardy in such a very short period of time. I and mean, you could get this 20% wrong in two weeks. How do you step in front of that? And it's, it's this time period where the enthusiasm of markets, the story, and then just the, the force of profits and profit, what they do to behavior becomes something you just can't get in front of. It's, it's just that the, the valuation just gets run over. How do you, I mean, how do you look at those types of periods? So this is why, and you, know, you alluded to this, but I basically spend the vast majority of my time now, now looking at not looking at companies per se. And so I'll be honest with you, I have very little insight in terms of what Apple's next quarterly earnings are going to be. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure that, that it matters. What I do spend a lot of time on is, is trying to answer exactly that question, right? So what is the market structure and what is the behavior of the participants that ultimately creates the condition that causes a transaction, which is the only way price gets set, right? So price only exists at the point at which a transaction occurs. And we tend to think about price as a continuous feature, right? But something could have just transacted and its next transaction could be 20% different, right? And that seems completely flawed, except if you embrace this underlying model of the price itself as a, as a virtual entity until that transaction occurs. What happens in a dot-com type environment is you have entities, individuals, or institutions that have a mandate. In the case of technology fund managers, they were dealing with massive inflows and were required to put money to work and were required to match the performance of a benchmark that was extraordinarily difficult. And so as the money was coming into technology funds, which captured people's attention for a variety of reasons, some of which, again, I think are more mechanical than people understand. But when that type of behavior is occurring, the street begins manufacturing product for them. And the characteristics of IPOs, if you remember from the 1990s, was that an IPO was issued at a discount to where it's expected to trade. And so it became a critical advantage for these technology fund managers and other managers to gain access to these IPOs early and to subscribe to them with the anticipation that the prices were going to rise significantly and give them the edge in performance that wouldn't be reflected in the benchmark where the security was going to start trading only after issue. So that, that type of mechanical behavior basically forces people to buy. 
a short seller, the most famous one in that time period was Julian Robertson, who looked at this and said, this is crazy. All a short seller is actually doing is manufacturing shares so that the supply can be met. That intersection of supply and demand, a short seller is just trying to increase the supply. If the capacity to manufacture that supply is inadequate to meet the demand, then the prices rise and the short sellers are forced to buy back aggressively, as you're pointing out, because they're, they're facing the prospect of ruin. And that can send prices moving in a purely parabolic fashion, which is exactly what we saw in that time period. Is the tech bubble a, a kind of a once in our lifetime or maybe twice in our lifetime type of mania where people are so excited and price reinforces the perception and it creates wealth, which kind of feeds back and there's this kind of this loop that's virtuous on the way up, but ultimately is proven unsustainable. You mentioned, I think, would you say March 10th? Of I think 2000? it was March 10th of 2000, then March 24th. So was there's the a day, yeah. and it just, what was that day? Was that day some version of the last buyer just was unable to keep it going? How do so, you I mean, the, the way I interpret that day is, is if you remember, and again, all of these things change over time, right? So institutional allocations used to be given out for roughly a three-year window, right? You would entertain managers in what was called a bake-off, a sophisticated separate account or, or fund manager would present in front of an investment committee. Everybody would make a large expense and effort and hire consultants to select down to a finite group of managers. And then you would receive a three-year allocation that would effectively give you an uninterrupted period of the opportunity to perform for that investor. And if you did well, you kept the allocation and that client would become a, a long-standing client but subject to annual review. And if you did badly, you know, then you'd be fired and replaced by the next one. That dynamic, that elongated period of allocation, I think played a primary role because people did not move aggressively to rebalance their portfolios in part because of the costs of transaction was so much higher in a world without decimalization, with higher commission costs. We obviously remember those. And also the selection process of a manager, right? ETFs hadn't really come out, so the liquidity wasn't there. The ability to reweight the portfolio on a continuous basis, handing that over to a machine was not something that was really widely accepted. And so as that money stayed in the technology space, I don't think it's coincidence that the vast majority of institutions would typically have their annual investment meetings in February and then choose to execute reallocations in March. And so I, I really actually think that what happened was that there was a supply increase. And effectively, portfolios, they tried to rebalance them, increasing their allocation to small value or to, inter or to emerging markets or others that had suffered over that time period and sell some of the technology. And it changed the dynamics of the supply-demand equation. The growth versus value Differential at that time period it was reached extremes. Yeah, yeah, kind of in a similar way, is reaching some extreme levels now. But back then, I'm just remembering there were certain funds that had started with a little bit of a value bent that got really caught in the crosshairs. I want to say AQR's early days got really hurt just as they got started because of a tilt towards value. When you step back and you think of that period of the differential, because there is something to be said for. A rising tide of a market lifts every boat, but value really got left behind. 
How do you think about, is that just a preference thing, just given the excitement about technology? So I think we create a narrative around effects that we see on the market. But it, again, my objective is always to kind of dig, peel back the narrative into what is actually happening. I've never made money by saying somebody else is stupid. I've made a lot of money historically by figuring out what the incentive structure was that caused somebody to do something that appeared stupid to me. You know, what I describe happening in the, in the dot-com bubble and the cycle that led up to it, which, as you point out, Greenspan identified as early as 1996, I actually really think that that is the same bubble that we're seeing today, which was the early impact of passive investment. And passive strategies that are market cap weighted, by their very nature, have a momentum tilt to them. How does something become large? Well, it goes up in price. How does something get a large weight in a momentum or a market cap weighted index? It goes up in price. As it goes up in price, it becomes more attractive to somebody who is buying on the basis of a market cap weighted construction, even if it is becoming less attractive to somebody who's choosing to buy it on an expected future return basis, where the fundamentals aren't meaningfully affected by the actual price performance of the stock. The interesting thing about a bubble like the dot-com cycle is, is that the performance of the stocks actually had an impact on the fundamentals because a company would go public. It would mean that they had funds that could be used to buy Cisco networking, which caused Cisco networking results to improve, which include, in turn justified why people would want to invest in Cisco. And in turn, investing in those technology funds that were overweight Cisco and had therefore benefited from that performance encouraged additional IPOs, which allowed people to buy Cisco equipment. There's actually a fairly well-documented body of research that highlights this dynamic of positive bubbles, right? Bubbles that cause a capital spending cycle and encouraged and accelerated the development of the U.S. telecommunications infrastructure. And that's all absolutely true, but the, the actual fundamental that drove that was not that the performance was better. It was that you were creating conditions for the stocks to outperform. And I would just highlight that if you go back to that time period, what you find is that the growth of index vehicles like Vanguard had actually really begun to accelerate at that point. And I distinctly remember being involved in bake-offs where the discussion wasn't, should we fire Mike Green and hire another active manager? It was justify why we're investing with you versus just replicating it with an index as the Russell indices had recently come out, et cetera. That dynamic, the early indexing, component in the 1990s had a really interesting characteristic because the indices themselves were what's called market cap weighted. And what that means is that you buy a stock in proportion to its market cap, but the structure of the markets was unique in that we had a lot of relatively recent companies that were relatively large, but had relatively few shares outstanding. So a Microsoft, for example, had 50% of its shares held by Bill Gates and other employees. So on a market cap basis, Microsoft was twice as large as it was on what we today would call a float-weighted basis. And that meant that the indices were buying twice as many shares of Microsoft as were actually available to trade, which causes the price to outperform, which causes those who are overweight, Bill Gates, and also technology fund managers to outperform and in turn drives that capital cycle. So I think that was the primary driver of what we actually saw as as the dot-com bubble. Now, we would call that factor back in those days, you remember it was called insider ownership. And so the narrative that emerged was that companies that had high levels of insider ownership had management aligned with shareholders, right? And so they were supposedly better run companies. Right. We don't talk about that anymore because nothing has significant quantities of insider ownership anymore, mm -hmm. right? And that 
transferred into the technology space simply because the technology space had a disproportionate share of relatively recent companies who had this characteristic of going public and having a relatively high fraction of their shares held outside of the public markets in, in terms of insiders. And so set off its own unique sectoral bubble that I think most people would agree had some really positive impact in terms of the development of the technology and the infrastructure, but also was quite caustic to certainly those who participated in the market. There was an awful lot of malinvestment or, you know, not to use too, too distinctive an Austrian phrase, but an awful lot of money that was thrown away at things like Globe.com or GeoCities or, you know, all sorts of things that, that really had fundamentally zero value. I also think that there were a lot of terrible lessons that were learned. So you highlight the challenges that AQR experienced. I'll tell you on a personal basis, like it probably delayed my development in terms of my thought process and markets for a solid six or seven years because I actually believed that the valuation work that I was doing that I'd been trained in was the fundamental underpinnings of the outperformance that I was able to generate over the next six years as that momentum cycle turned into a what was what was felt to be more of a value cycle and then in turn you saw that move into a commodity cycle and so the commodity was as late as 2006 if you had talked to most investors about commodities they would have said to you these are terrible companies right i mean they're just going to build another copper mine they're going to drill another oil well these are terrible businesses and then that suddenly became well this is the future right and oil prices going to 200 or 250 And so this idea that valuations were ultimately driving the market took a lot of unlearning for me to to really correctly diagnose many of the experiences that I had in my life. Maybe if I'd been 10 years younger at the start of it and I'd grown up on an SAC trading floor, I might have figured it out faster. But delayed development seems to be my specialty. So you've traded your share of options along the way in your career, some vanilla, some very complex across all asset classes, some real interesting structuring I want you to walk us through a little bit of the post-tech bubble. So the peak in vol is probably 2000, 2001. But 2002, there's this kind of mini credit crisis of Tyco and Adelphia. Then the U.S. went into Iraq in early 2003. There was kind of a bid to vol there. And then the quiet period starts, 04, 05, 06. So walk us through what was on your mind during that period. It was a good time for the country in terms of at least some of the nominal stats about wealth creation, expanded home ownership, And of course, in hindsight, we realized there was a massive leverage bubble building up. What was that like? We had some pretty skinny option prices, very low credit spreads. What does someone like you do during that period? Well, fortunately, I was somewhat shielded from it. So as I described, I managed to sidestep the tech bubble, stepped into to really one of the few spaces that had real opportunity. And so the performance of the, the funds that I participated in was very strong from 2000 through 2003. That attracted the attention of mutual funds here in New York. Came down and worked for Chuck Royce at Royce & Associates. Chuck is just a legendary investor. He and Whitney George, who was the chief operating officer at that point, ran things like the Royce Low Price Fund were true mentors and gave me an incredible opportunity to learn the process of stock picking. I'd still say that Chuck Royce is almost unparalleled in that area. But that in turn exposed me to kind of the first understandings of how you could develop a bubble in value. And so the distinct sobriety that you're describing and that very low level of volatility 
basically created conditions in which everybody had learned the lessons from 2000, which is you'd never pay more than 17 times for something. But in turn, people began to use leverage statistics, right? And so it became dynamics of, you know, I'm going to be a value investor because I'm selling something in an industry at nine times EV to EBITDA and buying something at seven times EV to EBITDA. So the long short community exploded in that time period. In the same time period, we saw an explosion of leverage in the housing market. And I think that they were fundamentally the two were the same thing. It was the first real growth of this credit type dynamic, which infected both the equity markets where I was primarily focused and in the credit markets. In 2006, I was fortunate. Mitch Julis and Josh Friedman, who I'd known for a number of years, tapped me to open the New York office of Canyon Partners. And I joined them in part to help them manage the equity exposure, which had grown as the opportunities in credit had diminished, but in part because they gave me the opportunity to trade cross-asset class. And so in early 2006, I actually spoke at a Lehman Brothers small cap conference, which I always love thinking about that it was Lehman Brothers and it was small cap value, and gave a speech basically echoing what Greenspan had talked about in 96 on the bubble in small cap value. Canyon gave me the opportunity to move into other asset classes, including much of the work that, that you and I talk about in the derivative space. So when I was at Royce, we really didn't have the opportunity to trade derivatives. I'd gotten my start, my very first experience in the financial markets was on the New York Mercantile Exchange trading crude oil options, but that was 15 years before sort of thing. And so I was able to step back into that space became very focused on the dynamics of the housing cycle and understanding how this leverage was increasing and understanding the incentive structures that were being created for individual homeowners to speculate on their homes through non-recourse leverage in the form of both mortgages, which are secured by the property, but in the United States at least, by the property, but not by the individual's income or other assets. Home equity loans had some similar characteristics. And so Americans in this environment of inflating home prices were structurally incentivized to participate through the non-recourse leverage dynamics. On the other side of that, you had an incredible growth in demand for fixed income securities, similar to what we discussed with the dot-com cycle where IPOs were manufactured, except this time what we were manufacturing was fixed income financial products to satisfy the overwhelming demand for these products from an aging global population, whether it was European investors who were primary participants or or Asian investors who were growing participants or even Americans, who somewhere around 2005 began to structurally shift from buying equities to buying bonds. There's just this incredible demand for product. And when there's a demand for something, Wall Street is spectacular at manufacturing it. My first exposure to what became the housing trade was through watching the characteristics of household income versus home price type dynamics and and understanding how that was changing and trying to dig back into it. And again, still kind of captured by this idea of valuation. But I was fortunate to be introduced to some of the dynamics around the synthetic products that were being created that allowed people to create even more fixed income, the synthetic CDOs, et cetera. And so, again, I was just incredibly fortunate that Canyon was in the right place and the right time and, and was able to participate in the ABX trade that became what's known as the big short. And a great example of narrative, right? The story that we're all told about the housing bubble is just that the, the bursting of that bubble was caused by interest rates going higher, right? We, we are all familiar with the movie, The Big Short, and say, well, when interest rates go up, you're never going to be able to pay back your mortgage. Well, interest rates didn't go up. 
And we saw that process of them marching higher, but that didn't meaningfully affect the mortgages because of the structure of the underlying market. What really drove it was just this need to manufacture product created the conditions for outright fraud and mortgage applications. And as those products were embedded in these structured products, the RMBS or the CMBS on the commercial side, we began to experience what are called first payment defaults. And those first payment defaults, it set off the waterfall that ultimately morphed into the housing crisis. And it was purely tied to the the structuring of the financial products. Again, indices that were created, that people were referencing, it didn't actually matter what the underlying fundamentals were. It just mattered, were those QCIPs labeled X? And if they were labeled X, then they could go into the indices and they could be priced as if they were fair and valid financial contracts, which they ended up not being. And you mentioned evaluation again, and curious, when you sort of think about the enablers of this, greed, you framed it as there's this demand for product and Wall Street's going to fill the demand. Do you think they could have filled the demand as well without being able to label this thing AAA? Because that's the valuation. That's the, oh, it's AAA, that must be safe, and I'm picking up 30 or 40 basis points on top of Treasury AAA securities. Is that a big part of it to you? I think it is, but I think it's I, I think it is for reasons that may be different than kind of again the kind of perception of outright fraud. There really isn't a great mechanism for forecasting the performance of securities. Again, prices are set by where transactions occur and most as you know, most exotic derivatives don't have a formal model beneath them. They actually will have a model that's used for risk modeling characteristics, but they're almost inevitably priced to where transactions are occurring. This is very similar, you know, where you're, you're talking about products that people will, the only reference point they have is how that security or securities like that have behaved in the past. And when you're dealing with thousands upon thousands of credit instruments, the ability to manually go through that and validate all the data becomes very hard. I mean, one of the, the big ironies is, is the more diversified you get, the more you spread out your investments the less attention you can pay to any individual one. Now, if you apply leverage to that, that can work out extraordinarily well on the way up. But if it turns out that your assumptions about the performance of those underlying securities were wrong, then that leverage can bite you in the other direction. And we just don't have great mechanisms for forecasting that type of dynamic. It's really hard to tell somebody that something's broken when it's going higher in price. It becomes very easy to explain it afterwards. Michael Lewis and and all sorts of movies can do that with far more flair than I could ever do. But to try to convince people of that while it's getting better is almost impossible. Yeah, price reinforces our behavior financially. It's a big part of the pocketbook effect. And then also, I think, our perception. And I think one of the things before the financial crisis, one of the stats I've used time and again is for for a four-year period, there wasn't a single day in the S&P where there was an up or down move of 2%. Four years is a long time. And at some point, your distribution of what's possible gets truncated. It just gets skinnier and skinnier, and and certainly in credit, that was happening. And I find the misperception, especially amongst central bankers, the IMF, these policymaking bodies who have all the data, who are there to steward markets for public good, they really just missed it. They philosophically misunderstood what a 10 VIX represented in early 07. They thought it was, we've conquered the business cycle. We've, we've tamed risk through financial innovation. I'm a big fan of financial innovation, but they just missed that it was 
the selling of vol that was pushing it down. And you know, we can maybe shift to some of, some of your thoughts on that before we do, because I want to I want to ask you about 2017, such a fascinating period leading into the XIV event, and then let's talk a lot about your current views on indexation and and some of the maybe the side effects. But before that, I just I would love for you to think about you know you've stared at these vol surfaces for years again across asset classes you have an appreciation for value in vol in skew in the relative pricing of things when you think through the period that you've been looking after derivative prices what are the times where a price really stood out to you and said boy i'm looking at that price and i I know it's there and it's the market price. It's where it cleared, but it's really hard for me to believe it. It's either so high or so low. What, what are those periods like for you that whether it was a correlation perhaps that just was strikingly low or high? As you point out, I've had the good fortune of seeing them you know, certainly shorten my life expectancy, but I've seen them in both directions. Periods that stick out to an extraordinary degree, the initial shot to vol in the aftermath of the failure of TARP in the initial passage of TARP in November of 2008 is a time period where we all were watching markets fall 10% in a single day, reverse in the next couple of days in a manner that felt so chaotic that ultimately we really just had no idea what was going on. Some of the smartest players in the market, people that are far smarter than, than I certainly in terms of the implementation of trading strategies, looked at the environment in the summer of 2008 and basically came to the right conclusion. The vol levels had risen to the point that the surface itself, so I mean, ultimately the way to think about a vol surface is it's the market's ability to apply probabilities to particular outcomes. When vol rises to that level, the market's basically throwing up its hands and saying, I have no ability to price. And at that point, you have to basically step in and say, I have some fundamental belief of what's driving this. In the aftermath of the events of 2008, the vol surface that stuck out at me most were in, in two fronts. One was the demand for longer dated volatility. So if you had looked at a five or a 10-year variance contract in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, those remained elevated at such extraordinary levels. Implied levels of volatility for a five-year variance contract or a 10-year variance contract at levels that implied 35-plus vols. I mean, I remember transacting in a 10-year variance swap at 47. I mean, that basically means that every day for the next 10 years, the market was expecting it to behave as if it was the three days after 9-11. If that's really like the outcome, if that's really the way the world is going to play out, then there is no point in investing, right? So that, that feels very wrong. And again, identifying the structural characteristics that created those sorts of conditions, which, which were a direct byproduct of the regulatory environment that first had hit the variable annuity industry in 2000, late 2006 and led to the Warren Buffett trades where he sold 10-year, 15-year puts across various indices. And then the aftermath of the Dodd-Frank and, and Volcker legislation that restricted the street from being able to hold that type of risk had created those conditions and, and allowed extraordinarily profitable short vol positions to be initiated over that time period. Other periods that were extraordinary in that framework, I mean, you and I both know the period of greater than 100% implied correlation around the flash crash in 2012, right. which sounds completely absurd until you work through the math that that's what has to be implied given the level of single stock ball that had happened. And then on the other side, I would actually highlight the dynamics of 2017, where implied correlation in particular 
forget the dynamics of the actual VIX itself, the real collapse had happened in the implied correlation. Effectively, the markets were pricing as if there was no underlying correlation to the components of the S&P 500 in the VIX contracts. That set up the conditions for you know what's colloquially known as Volmageddon on February 5th, 2018. When you look at 2017, we've talked about this. Your feedback would be excellent here, and I know you've done this at some conferences as well. It was not just low vol. It was so exceptionally low on a realized basis, 6%. I mean, I think the last month of December of 2017 was about 3.5% realized. There were days of that, right? But the inflation, basically the markets moved so much that the monthly vol, the realized level of monthly vol was far in excess of the daily realized volatility, right? Because it just kept going in the same direction. But it was moving very little on an individual day basis, but it accumulated into a fairly significant move. Do you think the Volmageddon happens if the XIV is simply not managing so many assets? In other words, if the XIV it just exists, too large, yeah. exactly. That was a situation in which I was involved, as, as you know. And I very publicly got into an argument with the founder of, of XIV. I think that it contributed. I think the size of XIV and related strategies had grown to a point that the analysis I was doing as I constructed my trades around that event, I actually was referencing back, and I literally went back and read Paul Tudor Jones' letters to investors as he was predicting the crash of 87. Most people are familiar with that dynamic from the documentary trader that Paul has has assiduously tried to keep out of the markets, where he's there mapping with Peter Borsch, you know, the day-by-day comparisons to 1929. His letters reveal something very different, which is he was extremely focused on market structure. He was very focused on the nascent liquidity of the futures markets and the evolution of this thing called portfolio insurance and how under certain conditions that had a reasonably high probability of occurring that the demand for the liquidity from the futures market was going to overwhelm the available supply. That's what really the Volmageddon event was about. The systematic mechanism in which XIV at the size of about two and a half billion and a related product SVXY, which I think is about a billion and a half, the size that those had gotten to required them to transact in a size that was basically 3x what would have been available on the futures market. The irony and the reason why XIV didn't actually go to zero and SVXY didn't go to zero because they couldn't actually buy enough volatility to offset the positions that were available. That liquidity failed to emerge. And as a result, when vol collapsed in the following day or in the aftermath of the event, they didn't bear the extraordinary cost of being fully hedged on that. They should have gone to zero. They went to one was suspended and never, never, never traded again, but redeemed, I believe, at 650. And the other one fell to eight as compared to going to zero. So if, if vol events are about... One, I think the market is confronted with something that it misunderstood. I always use housing prices as a good example. They don't go up forever. In the sovereign crisis, we learned, yeah, a a developed market sovereign can default, right? We didn't maybe think that before. So it's the shattering of something that's widely believed, new news of some kind. And then, of course, it's about positioning and the ability to bear the risk. Who's hands is the shortfall in. If it's a pension fund that's never going to look at the position and just hold it to expiry no matter what, that's a little different than a hedge fund that's reporting on a monthly basis and has got a lot of mark-to-market sensitivity to it. XIV is essentially a one-day stop-out trade, so it's a very concentrated version of that. 
when you look at the world now, and maybe this is how we can pivot to some of your very interesting views on market structure these days, when you step back and look at the types of things that can create a violent move. Now, we can't handicap new news, geopolitical events. Let's push that aside. No one has a real good understanding. But when you think about market structure and where vol is warehoused or where positions are warehoused, take us through some of your kind of current thinking. Well, I'm going to butcher the Mark Twain quote. It's not what we don't know that doesn't hurt us. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. Love it. Right? And points, just like little wrinkles that I would toss in the European sovereign debt crisis, right? Well, Greece is not a sovereign. And it sounds offensive, and I'm sure there's lots of Greek people that are going to call in and say, you know, it's a terrible thing to do and and write that on the the blog post. But the reality is, is that Greece owed money in a foreign currency, right? It owed it in a euro that it couldn't print. And in order to be an actual sovereign as compared to the state of California or the state of Delaware, right, the state of Greece, had far more in common with those municipal credits that actually owed something that they could only obtain by taxing their residents. And their inability or unwillingness to be somewhat fair to raise taxes to the point to allow them to repay was a function of their inability to print. Right? So they weren't really sovereigns, but we treated them as if they were. We believed they were. And so when they default, we talk about that as well, we've never seen a sovereign default. We still haven't seen a sovereign default. There's one Russia did, but that was because you know, I had a drunk for a leader. The characteristics of housing prices going up forever. Well, housing prices have by and large recovered, right? And they have continued to rise and we've continued to see high levels of unaffordability that historically would have led to our conclusion that this was unsustainable. In countries like Canada and Australia, we've seen people label those as bubbles as the levels of indebtedness have risen to and then significantly exceeded the levels of indebtedness we saw in the United States. You always have to be very careful in terms of saying, you know, housing prices don't go up forever because in nominal terms, they certainly can. It becomes a, a dynamic of can you service the underlying debt and there are other exigent factors. To me, the thing that everybody knows that just ain't so is the idea that passive investing is, is functionally free, that it is a structure in the market that allows people to participate but not influence. And the theory behind, the actual underlying thought process behind passive investing, the thought experiments that Bill Sharp outlined in his 1991 Arithmetic of Active Management, characterize passive investors as those who hold but never transact. And a member of AQR, Evan Lassie Peterson, wrote a piece, I believe it was two or three years ago, called Sharpening the Arithmetic on Active Management, where he highlighted that if they have to transact, whether it's because of index rebalancing he didn't identify this. I've, I've added this afterwards. If they need to transact because they have new flows coming in, then they're unquestionably influencing the market. And that takes you back to a realization of the impact that the index investing had in the 1990s, where indexing 1.0 before the restructuring of the equity indices to be float-weighted as compared to market-value-weighted was able to have this perverse effect of stimulating the dot-com bubble in my analysis. Same underlying component, you know, we called it ratings arbitrage. That was just another way of saying something was in the AAA index, something was in the B index, et cetera. And that encouraged flows in there with the idea being that you weren't influencing the underlying construction. You weren't influencing the underlying market. The availability of mortgage credit on a non-recourse basis dramatically stimulated people's willingness to pay more for housing prices. 
Today, I would say that what we're seeing is an explosion of people who no longer have any reason to believe that they should be thinking about what they're doing with their investments because they presume that their passive exposure, whether it's through an S&P index fund or Vanguard total market index or any other implementation, not to pick on Vanguard or anybody else or S&P, is a passive allocation. They're all active allocations and they're all influencing the market. And that dynamic that exists in the market of taking money away from active managers for whom the world's smallest violin is playing in terms of the travails that the industry is facing. But that money being taken away from those managers and flowing to thoughtless indices that run on the world's simplest algorithms, right? Did you give me cash? If so, then buy, is, in my opinion, the primary driver of much of what we're seeing. And if you were to step back and think about the degree to which it's happening, because this trend has been in place for a while, but we've certainly see some of the statistics on capital in in passive versus active. We know that the S&P is especially top-heavy right now. The NASDAQ is unbelievably top-heavy. I think the top five stocks are almost 40%. Give us a a sense from a numbers standpoint how big this has gotten. And is it ripe to just continue in your estimation? The quick answer is it's unknowable, right? Because it's, it's in the future. The structural environment, the framework that has been created for the perpetuation of money flowing into passive vehicles has been extraordinary. So you mentioned 2017. 2017 was a really interesting year because January 1st, 2017 basically kicked off the implementation of what was called phase one of the Department of Labor's fiduciary rule. This was a rule that was put in place in April of 2016 was formally implemented in January of 2017. And what it did was it established the requirement that any product that was offered by a company to deal with the retirement of its workers, a 401k, a 403b, a a 529 plan if you're saving for college, et cetera, basically had to be invested in low-cost index funds or the sponsor, the company offering that product, could become liable for the excess fees and underperformance of the products that were offered, effectively putting the liability on the corporation to guarantee a level of relative performance. Corporations aren't in that business, and it's just not their job. And so faced with a liability, they'd much rather switch to passive investing, particularly because it has this great PR dynamic, right? It's passive. It's not affecting anything. As that began to occur, like that's just a huge slug of liquidity that comes into the market. You're replacing managers that hold cash with managers that don't hold cash. That drives liquidity. You're replacing managers that care about future expected value and therefore have a degree of hesitancy to their behavior, both on the buy side and on the sell side, with managers that have zero hesitancy. And so the characteristics that we saw in 2017 with this inflating market with this very high sharp ratio, to me, is somewhat of a natural byproduct of those rules going into place and basically forcing a continuous flow of biweekly, you know, a portion of biweekly paychecks that we construct a narrative, we call it buy the dip mentality. Well, they weren't buying dips because there were no significant dips, right? It was just a, if you got a paycheck, then buy. So when you think about can, where we are in, in passive, and you think about the the risks that come from ultimately, I think the way you framed it is quite quite effective, which is the 
passive is not as passive as you might think. It's actually, there is a decision there and the decision-making of doing more passive is influencing an outcome. And it's leading to, as you say, it's, there's a momentum effect with essentially chasing the, the largest stocks. They get larger Ch- Chasing larger. the largest stocks, the, the actual implementation of indexing in many situations creates the condition that reinforces that. We have many indices for cost purposes. Again, their target is low cost. Instead of buying 100% of the stocks in the index, they'll engage in replication strategies. So they'll buy a representative sample of stocks in the index. If you want to match the index performance, that means by definition, you have to buy the five largest and then you can choose other things to buy. But everybody has to buy those top five, which means that they receive relatively more allocation than even things that are in the same index. And so they outperform. That's further reinforced by the dynamic of share buybacks. Share buybacks are a way of capturing the incredibly low cost of capital that exists for debt, which has its own indexing characteristics, and replacing equity in a capital structure with debt, whether that's taking cash off of a balance sheet and returning it, or whether it's issuing incremental debt to obtain cash to take off the balance sheet. Again, Manigliani and Miller would tell us that there's an equivalence between stock buybacks and dividends, that there's an equivalence between debt and equity. But the simple reality is is that all those models ignore the actual transaction process. The fact that a company shows up to buy shares unquestionably has to exert buying pressure on those shares and contribute to a stabilization of performance and a slight outperformance. Many of the strategies that are involved in things like share buybacks are actually synthetic derivative sales, primarily synthetic put sales. They contribute to the supply of volatility that the street is then receiving, which is further depressing the levels of implied volatility that we see. You've done a lot of good work and and thinking on just the how the increase in passive stake in markets, how it interacts with correlation. Can you walk through some of that? The easiest way that I define it for people is, is that it's important, again, to really understand what correlation means. So the definition of correlation is what fraction of the movement of variable Y can be explained by the movement of variable X. And that correlation, therefore, requires movement of both variables. What we see is the very low levels of correlation in 2017, and again, we're starting to see them now, is really a function of that very low level of realized volatility. If I'm not actually moving the market by very much, it becomes very difficult to observe significant degrees of correlation. Y is being my ability to interpret the relationship between Y and X is being hampered by the low movement of X. If it's just not moving, I can't really come to a conclusion about that correlation. Now, the default assumption is is that people look at the low calculated levels of correlation and presume that that's created by conditions in which there's very little relationship between the two. And that leads in turn to the perception that, well, stock pickers should be able to outperform. The fact that we're seeing the opposite that should be a warning sign. You know, we both have kids, right? When your kids are in school and they came home and they tell you, I failed the test, your immediate reaction is, well, clearly you didn't study hard enough. But if you then hear every kid in the class failed the test, your reaction should shift to, well, clearly the teacher either wrote a test that was impossible or failed to instruct you properly in the process, right? There's something wrong in the application of that test. I would argue that the behavior that we're seeing, this incredibly low level of performance, despite fees that even for active managers are a fraction of what they were historically, 
It's telling you that this is some variant of there's something wrong with the test. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of current pricing of of optionality in markets. You've traded a lot of rate derivatives along the way. And for a, a long period when the Fed was doing very explicit forward guidance, rate vol was pinned to the floor. We know the Japan and Europe story. Maybe those option prices will never emerge from close to zero. The U.S. had a little bit of rate volatility in, in, in t- early 2019, but now we've kind of come back to low levels again. How should we think about what that says about expectations and, and sort of the ecosystem in terms of how the prices are set in rate option markets? Volatility is one of these interesting things when we talk about rate vol or we talk about equity volatility or commodity volatility, et cetera. There's a presumption, again, that it reflects the underlying behavior But all of the numbers that we're talking about are both realized and implied. And the implied is set by a transaction price. The low levels of interest rate around the world have created this incredible incentive for people to engage in yield enhancement strategies. And the only really effective way to enhance a yield is by taking on risk by selling volatility. I will get a higher return if I own an underlying treasury and bet that that treasury is not going to rise significantly in price. Well, or rise significantly in yield, right? No. Well, now I'm carrying actually a double-edged sword where I've levered my position in that treasury. I could also just buy two treasuries, but that's taken away by the flatness of the curve, the ability to finance those types of dynamics. And so people turn to strategies like rate selling when they're looking to enhance those yields in a situation in which it becomes difficult to add additional leverage to it, right? They're taking theoretical leverage by selling insurance but that doesn't necessarily show up as an immediate doubling of the position in, in the rates or the commodities or the equities. Is rate vol, in your estimation, consistently a good deal in terms of owning or being short? And how would you sort of set it against something like equity vol, where that vol risk premium is pretty persistent? We know it could go away in a hurry and you could wind up on the wrong side of it, a la early 2018. Talk to us just a little bit about the vol risk premium. First, I'm far from the world's expert on this stuff. I can only speak to my experience. I think rate vol, and I disagree with some of my close friends on this who have very different views, but I think rate vol, people tend to forget that particularly for true sovereigns like the United States, the European Union in aggregate, Great Britain, Canada, Australia, rate vol is actually a policy choice. So if the Federal Reserve were to decide that they wanted to keep interest rates perfectly flat in perpetuity, and we were to actually believe them, then the correct price for rate vol is zero. And that's a policy choice. Our degree of uncertainty about their ability to actually effectuate that, because that could potentially be a catastrophic strategy that leads to fantastic currency appreciation or fantastic currency depreciation, which is the residual component there. That is fundamentally what sits at the center of our rate vol calculations. And so when we think about that rate vol and that forward rate vol in particular, I would suggest that we're basically making observations about the ability of central bankers to maintain their policy rates. They've demonstrated remarkable commitment to doing that. And the market has also shown its ability to discipline central bankers. 2018, obviously, with the Federal Reserve is a good example of that and react almost as negative bond vigilantes, right? Don't you dare give me an interest rate higher than X, Y, Z. So that has created conditions in which the level of volatility of the rates themselves is likely very, very low. It's hard for me to see how that reverses without currency vol, 
which is the other side of that equation, beginning to explode. And so I find currency vol far more interesting than rate volatility, even if it's priced at a slight premium, which I would argue it's actually not. If I look at the forward markets for developed market currencies, forward rate vol in yen, to a lesser extent euro, certainly against Chinese yuan, the Australian dollar, like all of these are pricing near record low levels. I think that's going to probably be a point of contention in the next couple of years. On the equity vol side, I think the structural dynamics of rising passive investing is creating a fundamental rising trend of correlation. And so while it's very unpopular to point to the equity markets as potentially a leading character in this, I actually think that the equity volatility, and we've seen this with the rise in volatility on a structural basis, the VIX hasn't come anywhere close to matching the 2017 levels even as the implied levels have actually, on many cases, returned, the realized levels, I'm sorry, have returned to, for brief periods of time, levels that are very similar to what we saw in 2017, the implieds have come nowhere close. And we actually seem to be setting a, a pattern of rising implied volatility, which in my mind is a function of this rising underlying correlation. There's an interesting trend going on right now in tech, and probably Tesla is the biggest example, but the stock is gone up a tad and the vol is climbing with it in a hurry. It's a very interesting dynamic. If you look at triple Qs, the performance of the index is outstanding. The vol is flat to up from a couple of months ago, and the realized vol has done nothing but go down. And there might be some signal there. The markets are becoming more speculative. And at, at some point, someone says, look, I do want to stay long, but it makes sense for me to buy this insurance contract via a call or a put, because I just don't know. Well, I mean, you're familiar with these mechanics, but I think one of the big events that led into, again, the the Volmageddon dynamic, and I I think it was a a child of many fathers sort of phenomenon, strategies that had proven to be historically very profitable, things like a one by three call overriding strategy, had artificially inflated the supply of -of out-of-the-money calls. And I think that had contributed to the very low levels of the VIX that we observed in 2017. The blow up of funds like Catalyst, it was a noted one by three overrider or harvest in the, in the fourth quarter of 2018, who was a significant seller of Condor type strategies. That supply of volatility, I would argue, has been reduced. And so people are much less willing to purely entertain the idea that the upside is bounded, right? right? Again, the market kind of lives in this world where it looks at valuations and says, that can't be sustainable, right? The upside has got to be limited. My work on passive would suggest that that's probably not true, but it really depends on the flows. So I, I think that has probably been a significant contributor to it in terms of this rising dynamic. To your point in this specific example, that type of fragility, that ability for the market to rise significantly you know, it becomes very hard to sell a call on the NASDAQ when you watch the world's largest companies rise 30, 40, 50% over a short period of time. Tesla, in my analysis, is part of that. But again, it goes back to the underlying character of who's owning it, who's buying and who's selling. So the story I would tell on Tesla, which I am completely ambivalent on in terms of the actual performance of the stock, think the fundamentals are terrible, think the leadership is absurd. But the actual stock itself had some really interesting characteristics, because if you look back at who owns this stock, 
Over the last 18 months, basically culminating in September of 2019, you had some active players, T. Rowe, Price, and Fidelity and its discretionary funds, you know, active manager funds, that had been sizable sellers. They sold 36 million shares over that time period. On the other side of that, you had buyers like the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, who basically bought in and, and are full holders with very little sensitivity to price. You had players like Kathy Wood at ARK Investments, who's you know responded to the increase in price by taking up her price target. That's just a way of saying, I'll never sell. Bailey Gifford, I would argue, is somewhat similar. And underneath all of that, you had Vanguard and BlackRock becoming larger and larger shareholders and accumulating shares on a continuous basis. Once T. Rowe and Fidelity had basically exhausted their capacity to sell the shares, that was further enhanced by short sellers seeing that underperformance created by those 36 million shares that were being sold by those two players. That meant that Tesla had underperformed and short sellers interpreted that as validating their thesis. And so they had built sizable short positions. It was 44 million shares short or something going into the fourth quarter of 2019. As Fidelity and T. Rowe have exhausted their supply of shares and BlackRock and Vanguard are buying underneath, the stock begins to move higher and the shorts are forced to cover, which means that they have to buy 25 million shares in relatively short order to get them to the, the level that they walked out at the end of the year with. As Vanguard, BlackRock, and others who will never sell to them, right? A variant of the Bitcoin hodler, Kathy Wood, who raises her price target in response to a higher, you know, achieved price. All of those are basically saying we're not going to sell to the short sellers who are now trying to buy back. So the stock price takes off. I don't think there's fundamental information behind it, right? There can be, and you can adopt a structure. The unique thing about the XIV was that it had a structure such that if it fell by 85% in price, it was going to stop trading. And so you actually knew that you weren't going to have this thing fly back in your face. That's a very different animal than something that doesn't have a definable end. Yeah, Tesla is a fascinating one. You don't see many $100 billion market cap companies with uh, volatilities in the 60s, 70s, and you know the short-dated vol is 100. Yeah, I mean, the, the pushback to that is, I would say, Bitcoin, right, with a $300 billion valuation exhibited exactly those characteristics, and I would argue for exactly the same reasons. Yes, exactly. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time. It was great to catch up. It was fantastic. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.